Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Yasna Delik. I'm from um, Toronto, Canada. And uh, just for the record, I wish I was doing a uh, forum on quilting 101 right now. <laughs> this has uh, not been an easy uh, experience for me. Um, I don't know if many, I'll just start with a little bit of my background. And um, I like talking a lot, and sometimes I'll go off on a tangent. So I'll rely on you and your faces to just get me to focus. So that's your responsibility. Um, basically, actually, before I um, continue, why don't we uh, bow our heads in a word of prayer and invite the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in this morning hour as a group of women whose desire, I believe, is to seek out what your desire is for us, what you have designed for us, what's your plan, and what's your purpose for us as women. I don't think that we would have come if that wasn't on our heart. But we want to give you all the glory and all the honor because you're worthy of it. And for myself, Lord, I pray that I wouldn't come across as though I've got this all figured out because you know that I don't, but that you've laid this on my heart and you've brought circumstances in my life to reveal to me the power of this principle, the principle of submission, and how it works, and it's true, and it's good. And so I pray, Lord, that you would use me as a tool in your hands today, that I would get out of the way and allow you to flow through me by the power of the good and Holy Spirit. I invite you, Lord, and I say that hesitantly, because when you come, change happens. And are we ready for it? In your Son's name, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Um, I was approached to do this forum a few months ago. And, you know, basically, I don't know if you can categorize women and how they like to not be submissive, but um, there are a few categories. And one of the categories is that uh, some women love to talk about submission. They've got stacks of book, books by their bedsides. They are the first in line for the seminars. And that's me. I love talking about submission. But when I turn to my husband and I'm like, hey, look at that lady over there. She is so not submissive. He looks at me like, puzzled. Oh. <laughs> Neither are you. And I'm shocked. Like, what do you mean? I've read every book, cover to cover. I know everything about it. So having said that, I guess the overarching feeling that I want you to have is that I'm coming from a place of brokenness. I have seen God reveal himself when I submit myself to him and get under the headship of my husband. So I'm coming to you with humility. Not like, hey, I've got it made, and now I'm going to tell you how to do it. Although I'd like to do that, but I'm not there, in all honesty. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I'm from Toronto. I'm married to this guy, really mellow, kind of like just like laid-back guy, <laughs> called Dennis Delick. Boy, was I in for a ride. Anyway, um, we're both quite strong with our personalities. Um, so we got married 11 years ago, and we have two great kids, Faith and Grace. 
Whoa, I just forgot how old she was. Oh, she'd kill me. Nine and six. And as I was, as God was laying on my heart certain principles that I wanted to talk about today, I started taking a trip back in my mind to the day that I got married. And knowing what I know now with all the books by my bedside, I was 29 when I got married. I wasn't a spring chicken. You know, I thought I had it all together. And when I walked down the aisle, I don't think I thought, hey, first of all, I was worried about tripping over my dress. But other than that, I don't think I thought, you know, hey, I want to serve this guy. And I want him to purge from me all the ungodly characteristics that are in me. Yeah, that's what I want. Are you kidding? I was like, I hope he makes me happy. I hope he makes me happy. I really, really hope he makes me happy. That's essentially what I was thinking. I wanted pureness. I wanted relationship. I, wanted, I mean, we all, uh, most of us grew up in a Christian home. We didn't date that much. You know, we, we, I mean, my home I didn't feel was stifling. I didn't get married to get out of the house by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, you think, oh, you know, this is going to be great. We're going to do things together. We're going to travel places, finally have the freedom to do that. It's awesome. And then I got married. And I was like, oh, my goodness. This isn't anything like what I had anticipated. And some of those dreams and aspirations aren't wrong. But they have to come within the context of God's principles and his standards. Okay. So, I, at some point, so in the beginning, I'm not embarrassed to say, God put me through this for a reason. Our first, I'd have to say, to my shame, five years. I remember people saying that when I was single. It was turbulent in the beginning? Uh-uh, not with me. You wait. It's going to rock when I get married. First five years, turbulent, super turbulent. I was 29 when I got married, and I, did, I wasn't lonely one day in my life. And then I got married, and all of a sudden I was lonely. It was a horrible place to be. Very dark. In lonely days, when I was married, first five years, I struggled with God so bad. Why would you do this to me? If you love me, why are you putting me through this? It's obviously not your will. Although I did receive peace to marry Dennis, I struggled with God. I wouldn't enter into a covenant of marriage until I was sure that this was his will. And I got that peace. He, he was faithful to me. He gave it to me. But within the first two years, I'm like, I'm out of this. There's no way I'm staying. I can't. Um, so essentially, I had to start turning to other women for godly counsel in our churches. And they started challenging, one sister challenged me to confront my own sin. And I thought to myself, confront my own sin. What are you talking about? I'm the offended party here. I don't deserve this. I'm not bad. I'm not doing anything wrong. This is not what I signed up for. But she continued to challenge me to face my own sin. And if any of you know me, and I'm not boasting when I say this. I'm just trying to make a point. I like praying. People call me, hey, Jazz, pray for me. I'm like, okay, kids, quiet. Mommy's going to go pray. So I go and I pray, and I love praying about other people's problems. 
But when this older sister challenged me to pray about my sin, I remember it vividly like it was yesterday. I went into my bedroom and I shut the door. My kids were wee babies. They were all sleeping. And I stood there. I couldn't bring myself to bow my knees. I'm offended. I'm hurt. I'm lonely and I'm angry at this point. And now I'm supposed to bend the knee and ask God, what am I doing wrong here? What's my sin in this? I couldn't do it. I physically had to push myself down, and I barely mustered the words out. God, show me my sin. And that's all I could say. Something amazing happened. Not right away. It's called submission. It's a culturally dirty word. In this day and age, it's dangerous. You don't want to touch it. Submission? That's a weakness. What are you talking about? Submit? You try telling anybody in the secular world that, they think you're crazy. Many women, even Christian ones, are confused and hostile about what it means for a wife to be submissive to her husband. The topic is much maligned and misunderstood in the world and in the church alike. Women are often made to feel like fools if they ascribe to such teaching. Feminists are vehement in their objection to this. They bring up questions such as, is the wife really supposed to say nothing and just let her husband beat her? Or look at her husband is a drunk and and she's been supporting him for years. Is she supposed to just let him run over her like that? These questions deserve a real biblical answer. Well, I answer with a resounding no. Does the Bible teach what some people call doormat theology? Is he he allowed to just run over her like that? Is he just supposed to stomp on her? Is she supposed to lose her identity? Is that what the Bible is really teaching, doormat theology? No. The Bible teaches that God has provided several ways to protect a wife whose husband is sinning, and that it is the wife's responsibility to take advantage of God's protection. Some think that a wife is more spiritual if she does nothing and sits passively by and suffers for the Lord's sake. So as a reaction to the doormat theology, I don't want to be a doormat, or I'm suffering for the Lord view of submission, some churches have gone to the other extreme. They've embraced a feminist view of the wife's role. The liberated woman is tolerated and even taught in many churches. Many ministers often avoid the issue of submission altogether. It's so volatile. Those who do address it make it a little more palatable with a sugarcoating of, well, you know what? It's a mutual submission of the husband and the wife instead of clearly teaching, what is my role? And here's the thing. I don't want you to sugarcoat it to me. I want to be a godly wife. Tell me what it is that I need to know. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't say, well, you know what? It's this. It's a little bit him. It's a little bit you. I want to know. And here's one other thing I want to say. The overarching feeling that I want to have today is they're not here, the men. They're at another forum. They're not here. This is about us. This is about what's my role. I'm sick of looking at them. Look, they're doing that. They're not being obedient to God. They're disobedient. Look at them. Forget about them. Let's stay here, just with us, just with women. What does God call us to do? So, unfortunately, because many people are not teaching this theology correctly, It's confusing and misleading to many women who really want to know and do God's will. Really, that's what sets us apart from other women. We want to know, what is it, God, that you have for me? And because of the frequent misperceptions and misrepresentations of the true biblical teaching, 
A wife needs to know what true biblical submission really is and how God intends for it to glorify him because that's really what it's all about. As much as I want glory for myself, it's not about me. So I thought, you know what? Let's look as a backdrop, and I'm just going to go through this quickly, the traits of the excellent wife. I look at this, and I try to skip over it as many times as I'm going through Proverbs. Oh, there she is. Okay, I don't want to tell. No, forget that. All right, but I tried to kind of like break it down a little bit, and we're just going to fly through it. Um, Proverbs 31 describes the virtuous woman, the excellent wife, as she's trusted. She's loyal to her husband. She's thrifty and industrious. Oh, boy, it's a big one for me. Um, she, I believe, works hard with her hands. She goes far. No, she's resourceful and entrepreneurial. The funny thing is, I always had this image in my mind. I don't know what it is. Perhaps it's my upbringing, the educational system, whatever. But I always thought, you know, the virtuous wife was just um. Uh, you know, she is meek. I'm not trying to look at it that way, but just someone who doesn't really step outside of the home. This lady, she's cool. She goes out, she sees a, a land, and she buys it, and she sells it so that she can provide for her family. Not provide in, the, in that sense, but she uses that money um, in order to work within the home. This is all within the context of the home. She's not providing like the husband does, but she's smart. She's industrious. She's hardworking. Uh, she is also generous. She's respected. She's kind. She's respected. She's kind. She's blessed by her children, praised by her husband, respectful to him. She's wise, and she fears the Lord. I think out of all those, I have that last one. I fear the Lord. <laughs> the other stuff, it's coming. Um, anyway, so... Many women desire to have the traits outlined in this chapter and on these slides, and the good news is that we can. Any woman, here's the disclaimer, any woman who is obedient to God's word can experience the blessings of becoming a godly woman. That's all it takes. It's really simple. A wife's responsibility is to put her trust in God's word, to obey its truths and teachings. Only then can she become the woman that God wants her to be? And I'd like to call up Barb Munther for a testimony. Hello. I almost think that you probably hear me too much. But at any rate, um, some people have actually said they haven't heard this testimony. And I'm really, my focus is, was going to be to the things that helped me with submit, submission. But to give you, before I get there, I guess I have to give you some background. First of all, I was raised in the apostolic Christian tradition in a home that was uh, professed that. And really, I hate to say it, but I can say there's probably at least four generations back people who actually heard Froelich in my family and were converted. So I rejected all that. That's the bad part. I rejected Jesus, really. And um, my husband was raised as a Catholic in Lebanon, and at any rate, we were both surgeons when we got married and both non-believers in Jesus. Um, we left Manhattan, New York City, and went to rural Kentucky to start our practice together, being the only surgeons. That meant we left family, we left church, we left any support you could come up with, um, and we were the only two surgeons, meaning we were on call all the time. So that's a little stress right there. But 
I had an expectation when I got married, and that was we worked together at the hospital. We worked together at home. We worked together with the kids. Uh, uh-uh, that wasn't his expectation. Um, but isn't a marriage supposed to be like that? We work together. Aren't we? Ephesians 5 talks about submitting one to another. Hmm? I didn't think I was so far off. At any rate, it seemed like I was the only one submitting. But it was really having my first child. I held that baby in my arms. And I realized for the first time how I had nothing to offer him. I was educated. I was a doctor. School didn't help. Um, but here is this perfect baby, and I had no philosophy of life. I had nothing to give him, no ways to train him or direction. And that is what drove me to the Bible. And um, so I studied the Bible, and through that, um, developed a relationship with Jesus and realized that he really loves me and died for me. And um, it was his atoning sacrifice that saves me. And that gave me the answers. And that gave me a purpose. And that made all the difference in the world. Kind of. Uh, we had many, many pressures in our marriage, and it was turbulent. And becoming a new Christian, the submission thing, um, I think I really veered off towards more the doormat side at first. And not only that, but I had this sense that I had to keep my husband from getting angry. In other words, run around and try to take care of everything that I could think of that would set him off. And of course, that's impossible. Um, and needless to say, it drove me nuts, and really what I didn't have are any really boundaries, and that was not godly submission. Um, the other thing, the other expectation that pretty much broke the, cam- the straw of the camel's back, wherever that thing goes, um, is that people would tell me when he's converted, everything's going to get better. And I banked on that one. And what I didn't, and our reality for us is life got worse. Um, The turmoil, the conflict, it got worse. And what I since learned afterwards is that that should be the expected. What do you think? The devil's going to work overtime. What do you think? You're coming face to face, both of us, with our our sin. That's not easy to deal with, you know. Um, It's hard to break old habits, So all that stuff actually made everything worse in our marriage. And we tried everything. Um, We went to counseling. We had marriage retreats. We did this and that and all this stuff. The pastor we were working, the minister we were working with moved out of town. Um, uh, It just seemed things were getting worse and worse. And frankly, when stuff became even more turmoil after he was baptized, um, I lost hope, and frankly, I decided that we need to do things our own way, and left God out of the picture pretty much, and we separated, and um, the funny part was it seemed like relief. I got rid of my problem, and things were better. Eh, it seemed like it for a little while, 
God had this gnawing little verse that he kept bugging me with. Again, with First John 4, about loving your brother. You know, it's like, oh, he's not even my brother. He's my husband. Um, where's my witness? Oh, it's worse than that. It says if you hate your brother, you're not even of God. I mean, this kind of, this is like a little thing that just plagued me. But I was really working to please God, regardless. But after time, I started seeing more and more trouble in our, in our, in our life with me and the kids. Um, and that verse started becoming stronger, and I decided, we decided to act on it. Um, through all sorts of circumstances. It makes a long story, um, so I'm not going to get into that. But um, one of the things I did was, well, we came in contact with Miracle Mountain Ranch, a Christian group, um, and one of the things I did was take a Bill Gothard course with the, the people there on basic life principles, and I learned something about authority. Oh, I didn't know about that stuff before somehow. I, I missed those chapters. Um, authority provides protection for those under authority, those who are submissive to that authority, and that's a good thing. Somehow I always thought authority was kind of bad. You just want to get rid of it. Um, and then I discovered that when you're not following and not within God's protection, God-ordained authority, then you are left in Satan's territory. And there aren't too many people who could be difficult and harsh that could compare with Satan. And I realized that, whoa, this is really scary. I have actually taken my kids who I thought I was protecting and put, them, put all of us into a worse situation, that into Satan's territory. Then... Now, that was about eight years now. This next year, we really worked hard on coming back together. But when we got back together, I had some major issues. I had bitterness. I had to deal with submission. And I thought a difficult, harsh individual. Um, That's what it seemed to me. And so what I really want to talk about is the stuff that helped me, because It was really, really hard to pull back a marriage, pull back kids. Um, Just everything was um, hard. Um, Anyway, I studied the Bible. I immersed myself in the Bible. We had a weekly ladies' Bible study that was awesome, Um, really and cool accountability and just really urging each other on. That was so helpful. I also was challenged not to memorize just verses, but memorize chapters. I started with James 1 and moved on to different things. And I found a value there, because there's stuff. There are those little verses in the midst of these chapters that you don't want to deal with. And all of a sudden, I had to deal with them, because they come right along. And those are the ones you want to skip over, but you can't. Um, I learned some things by that. This was really helpful. Psalm 103 talks about how God hears the, pri- the prayers and the cries of the oppressed and a number of other places too and deals with those authorities his way. 
Our authorities have to answer to God. That gave me some, some hope. That gave me some, I could, okay, I don't have to do that changing. I don't have to deal with any of that. I can rely on God to do that. And that protection thing again. Also, I read Stormy and Martian's Praying a Wife. When you have to pray for somebody in very specific, many, many areas, I mean, she recommends you pray for his reputation, his sexuality, his finances, work, blah, 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 lots and lots of things. When you start praying like that for somebody, it messes with your mind. It changes your mind. And that's a really good thing. And it also, I found out, I had to learn and ask God to open my mind so I could allow my husband to change. You know, you kind of get into these patterns, and, oh, there he did it again, okay. And, but no, there was a slight difference, or maybe uh, the timing was different or something. And I had to actually ask God to open my mind to even see that stuff, give him, give him space to change, let God take care of that. It's timing and also a change in way of seeing um, I used to journal a lot, I guess, just praying. You know, I could go around in circles or I'd go off on tangents. But if I wrote it down, as I'm writing it practically or just after that, read it. You guys are like, oh, my goodness, I'm thinking this? You know, the sin in those wrong thinkings would be so obvious. You know, I'd have to stop and ask God for forgiveness right then and there. Uh, vigorous housework and other such things were also important at the time to deal with all these things. Um, another thing that is, is kind of weird at the time, I thought, but um, often my husband would do something, actually. He'd be the one that would set it off. And I'd get really angry um, inside, and I would pray, and I'd journal, and I'd do all these things, and I couldn't get the peace. I couldn't get beyond it. And I learned to ask him to pray for me. Okay, I didn't tell him, oh, you did this. No, I didn't even say what it was. I just said, I am frustrated right now, emotionally upset. Please pray for me. That's it, nothing else. Didn't specify anything. And if he were at work, as long as he wasn't in the operating room, he would actually stop and take time by phone or in person at that moment and pray for me. And that worked. And I wondered, why would that work? I was praying. But I realized God had a really cool plan. Later I realized this, that I was asking for help to my ordained authority, my head in the relationship. And he was taking the proper role then and praying for me. And God blessed that and brought us together all the more. All of a sudden we were doing the right stuff. Maybe not totally for all the right reasons, but we were doing it, and we practiced that, and it was working. Um, the other thing that I learned is that, well, I wanted to please Christ. Um, and submitting to any human being, I don't care who it is, none of them deserve it. Nobody deserves submission, really. It's not about that, though. It's about submitting to Christ's order and his plan, and I'm doing it to please Christ, please Jesus, my Savior, not that other person, no matter who we're talking about. And First um, Peter 2 talks a lot about submission. 
um, to various authorities, slaves, and so on. And that was another important chapter for me, I guess you'd say. We're called to suffer even when we're doing good stuff. And because Christ suffered for us as an example. And what did he do? He entrusted himself to God, the person who judges justly, the person who knows it all, the person who knows what's really going on, our motives and so on. And Christ being my example, I needed to follow that. And how I react is what matters. It doesn't matter what those other negative forces are, those evil forces, whatever, or those things that people do. I had to get focused totally off anyone else, him in particular, focus on my sin, focus on pleasing God. And those are the things that helped me. Thank you, Barb. Actually, one very interesting point that you made about being in Satan's territory brings me to my next point. So we've seen, I've given you my testimony, where I've come from and where I've been and what it was like. And then I've showed you a picture of what the Bible shows, these virtues that seem almost unattainable. But yet if we have the desire and we're obedient to God's word, we can attain them. Yes, we can. Like, uh, what's the Home Depot slogan? slogan? We can do it. No, you can do it. We can help. All right. So we can do it. God can help. Um, at any rate, so then we look at this, this woman, this, this perfect, virtuous woman, and we want to be like her. I think essentially deep down we all do. But there's something standing in our way, and it's the good old three-letter word, sin. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to call it shortcomings or failings. It's sin. Let's call it what it is because then we can deal with it. And I think that we can all admit, why am I talking when I have this? All right, here we go. I feel much freer now. Uh, I think that we can all admit that we have areas in our lives wherein we sin and we're imperfect. We all fall into that. Sin will erode the oneness that God intends for Christian couples to have. You know, it could even be old habits that we bring in, sinful thoughts, sinful responses. You know, we all have these sinful habit patterns of thinking and responding that hurt our marriages and ultimately grieve God. We would be remiss if we didn't admit that we all have areas wherein we could improve and better glorify God. It's our only purpose here. And let me stress this, our only purpose on earth is not to be happy. I'll qualify that statement later. It's not to indulge in our lusts. It's not to fulfill our deepest desires and our wants. No, it's really to glorify God. Next slide, 10. <clears throat> 10? There we go. So Isaiah 43, 7 says, God's saying, For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. How many of us have lost that focus? I have, really. I mean, life kind of just gets in the way, and I become very self-centered. I want to go back to my point of saying, it's not wrong to be happy. But our priorities must be aligned with God's standard and his word. And only then can we enjoy the fullness of life, the abundant life that Jesus promises us in John 10.10, where it says, I came that they may have life and that they would have it abundantly. Who doesn't want that abundant life? It's my dream. It's my joy. I want to have the abundant life. But I can't desire to be happy. I can't put the cart before the horse, is essentially what I'm trying to say. Most women don't even realize that they're sinning. 
some women compare themselves to other women and think, hey, you know what, I'm not doing bad. Kind of like what I told you in the beginning. You know, I'm comparing to my... To, to wives at the schoolyard, and I'm like, oh my goodness, Dennis should thank his lucky stars, and I hardly wait to tell him this story. And I tell him, and he's like, Jess, you're still not submissive. And I was like, what? what am I doing wrong? But what I've been doing is I was measuring myself to other people. Instead of measuring myself against the standard, the high standard of the word of God, and I fell into this trap. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves amongst themselves, they are not wise. Essentially, they're foolish. Don't do that. Don't compare yourself with other people. Stop it. I don't know if it's uh, not to offend my Serbian sisters here, but it might be a Serbian thing. I don't know what it is, but we won't go there. Anyway, so we first need to recognize that we have the potential to sin and that we're blinded to what our own sins may be before we avail ourselves of the remedy found in Christ Jesus. So we need to first see, hey, you know what? Yeah, um, this is not right. I'm not, I'm not doing something right. I need to identify what my sin is. And I told you about how I actually had to lock myself in my room to, for the benefit of you who haven't been here in the beginning. When I was injured and when I felt offended, I locked myself in my room, encouraged by the counsel of a godly older woman from one of our churches who encouraged me to ask God what my sin was. My sin. I've been baptized for 20 years. There's no sin in my life. I could barely bring myself to ask God. But he did reveal it to me because he's faithful and he's gracious and a gentleman too, the way he's, he revealed it to me. Okay, so now we have the perfect woman, what she looks like, sin interjecting. But now let's look at our view of God. Why is he telling us, why did he design marriage to begin with? So, you know, we live in a, a technically uh, saturated age of technology. Sorry, that was a wrong statement. Let me start that again. We live in an age that's saturated with technology, and there's no shortage of information available to us. But we often fall short of understanding who God is. And I've been a Christian for a while, but you know what? These misconceptions find their way to come in, and there are misperceptions about him. Some believe that, you know, if they're good enough, that God is somewhat obligated to bestow good gifts upon them, like the genie in the bottle syndrome, right? And this could be a myriad of things. Some people wish for health, others for wealth. Others for a rich or handsome husband, or, and this one is tricky, for an everyday, ordinary, hurt-free, pain-free life. Just don't hurt me, Lord. Just keep me in this bubble. I'm good. Yet others believe, you know, he's the kind of God who loves everybody, and he's happy with them as long as they're sincere about what they believe in and does not hold them accountable for their sin. And still others believe that he's a cosmic killjoy, ready to zap anyone who's having fun, and he's angry and ready to punish at any moment. He's impossible to please. And then they live miserable lives as a result. What does the Bible say about God? The Bible says he's just. The Bible says he's sovereign, he's merciful, and he's a loving ruler over his creation. Where he's sovereign, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. How encouraging is that? How supernatural is he? How omnipotent is he? He was the past. He is the present. And he's the future. Can we trust someone like that? Of course we can. He's loving. No, I'm sorry. He's not loving. He is love. It's different because, you know, if he's loving, then he could sometimes not be loving. No, he is love. That's his character. He is love. I want to say... Something about this, um, right about that time where I was confronting my own sin 
in my life. And this could be old habits, sinful habits, and things like that. While I was confronting this with the Lord, and it was not a nice time for me to be on the display and God showing me the wrong things about me, the things that he wants to purge. You know, uh, I've heard it said that our husbands are our God mirrors, right? They reveal to us what God wants to take out of us. And what a better platform than someone that, you know, you love. It's not easy, but still, it's somebody that you love who God is using to do this and to accomplish this. But um, I was in my bedroom. It was not a good time. That loneliness, again, had come in and set in. And um, all my fears. And I was sitting there and I said, you know what, God? You don't love me. You don't love me. If you did, you wouldn't have permitted this. You wouldn't have allowed me to commit myself to this relationship and to expose me to the hurts and to the pain that I'm feeling right now. You wouldn't do that if you're loving. I said that for a while. Months went by. One day I was putting Grace to bed in the nursery. Maybe we had just had a disagreement. I'll call it what it is. It was a fight, and it was bad. And so I was putting her to bed, and I said, no, you're not loving. You wouldn't do this to me. And I I felt compelled to pray, so I knelt down on the chair, and then this image came into my, like, high definition, like we said yesterday, high-def picture, high definition, right in my mind, of Jesus stretched out, nailed to the cross, a crown of thorns on his head, blood pouring down. That was the last time I ever told him that you don't love me. Love is not a feeling. He died for us. King David says it really nice. Because your love is better than life. What could be better than life? God's love. Because your love is better than life, I will glorify you. Jeremiah, God says to him, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I draw you with loving kindness. So we see that he's just, we see that he's sovereign, we see that he's loving. So what's our response? We're to bow to him in humble submission. What is it, God, that you want me to do as a wife? What is it that you have in store for me? We're here to serve him, not he, us. We've lost it. In this, we're saturated in this society about me, me, me. I'm sick of it. I see it everywhere. Movies, songs. It's all about me. It's not. It's about him. We need to get... We need to align our our thinking and our patterns of thought with what God expects from us. We're not to be self-centered. And one other thing I want you to know about God is that your wife, I'm sorry, your, your role as a wife was planned by him. From the beginning, before he created you, he knew who you were going to marry, and he planned it. He said that this is good. In turn, every wife's desire should be to glorify God in the way that he has designed. You see, God cares about our struggles. He cares about our hurts. I'm a living witness to it. Because why? Because he's intrinsically good. God is good. They say that in Africa. God is good all the time. They have no food. They have no clothing. They have no shelter sometimes. God is good all the time. And this makes him trustworthy because there's no limit to his strength or his understanding. 
He understands how we feel, and he knows all of our needs. We can lean on him as a result. And God then promises to use all of our circumstances, even the difficult, especially the painful ones, for our good. It builds us, it shapes us into the image of Christ, which ultimately is our purpose, if we respond biblically, that is. Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good, not just the good times, the bad times especially, work together for good to those that love God. Right, <clears throat> 10, <clears throat> second time, three times you're kicked out. <laughs> oh, there we go. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So there is a purpose, guys. There's a plan. It's awesome. There's a ministry that God has designed for us. And our number one priority after our relationship with God is to be faithful wives to our husbands. But, you know, maybe we're afraid. We're afraid to do the right thing. We're afraid to do God's will. Maybe because we know that we're going to be hurt. We're going to get let down. We're going to be taken advantage of. We're going to be stomped upon. Perhaps we don't even know what God's will looks like in the practical sense. We're so wrapped up in our problems, I've lost that. I've, I've, I've done that before. So wrapped up in my problem, I've lost perspective. But we can't deny that there's another reason why we don't want to do God's will. It's good old me. I wouldn't get my own way. Pride is so dangerous. You know the interesting thing about it? C.S. Lewis says, we see it in everyone else, but we don't see it in ourselves. Blind spots. It's very deceptive. We may not even realize that our motivations are selfish and that our motivations are manipulative. So God, whom we trust, who is infinitely good, wants us to do what is right so that we, in turn, can be joyful and fulfilled. And the only way, drum roll please, that we can experience this fulfillment fulfillment is for us to actively choose to place ourselves under the authority of our husbands, like Barbara testified earlier. <gasps> what? Me get under? Oh, you know what he's like? You should see him. Because we know that God is perfect, that we can trust him implicitly. In spite of our husbands' imperfections, bad habits, the way that he is, in spite of all that, God still designed marriage with the wife to be placed under the authority of the husband. It's not me that I'm talking. Well, like I said in the beginning, believe me, I'm not preaching this like I've reached it. I'm living this. It's not easy. It's not easy for me, I'll tell you. For those of you who know me, it's not. For those of you who know Dennis, you can understand what I'm talking about. No, I'm totally joking. That's one of the things I'm not supposed to do. Oops. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3 uh, says... But I, want, but, but, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. When we place ourselves under the authority of our husbands, then we are really in the safest place possible. We're in God's will. That's awesome. We can trust him. This doesn't mean that our husbands will do what's right. It doesn't mean that they're going to do the wisest things, make the godliest decisions. But submission isn't contingent upon what our husbands do. But it's based upon our obedience to the word of God. This has, like I said in the beginning, let's not think about them. Oh, he's like this. He's like, let's not think about them. What's my role, God? I want to do what you want me to do. 
And it's not contingent upon what Dennis does or what he doesn't do. Um, this is not a very nice illustration, but I thought it might do the job. So God is the overarching authority. The husband uh, is responsible to have God as his authority, and we are uh, responsible to get under our husband's authority. All right, understanding our roles. Okay, so we have our view of God, that he's good. Then we have, um, now I want to talk about our roles. Men and women are created in the image of God. Genesis 127, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Because we bear the image of God, we were given certain responsibilities. One of them, like I mentioned earlier, is to, what do we need to do? Somebody? Anybody? What's our sole purpose here? Can we say that louder together? Lord. Amen. So, we're getting Pentecostal here a little bit. <laughs> All right. So, here's one thing that if I want you to walk away with in this forum, I'm not pushing, you know, like doormat theology, like I said. I'm just coming from the Word of God. And here's one thing we're not inferior to the man, we're not inferior to him. We're created equal, spiritually, equal playing fields. But our roles are different. Look at the sun and the moon. Wouldn't it be foolish for us to say, you know, the sun's getting way too much attention. The moon needs some. It's foolish. They have different roles, but they both serve their purpose. And when we understand that, then we could do our jobs better. Woman was created for the man, not Man for the woman, 1 Corinthians 11, 7, 9, says he, meaning the man, is the image and glory of God. He is the image and glory of God. We need to treat him like that. If he is the image and glory of God, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Nor was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So God's original intention was for man to glorify God, and the woman is to glorify the man. And this is a wonderful illustration, the illustration of the Trinity. It's beautiful. There's perfect harmony within them. Different roles, three different distinct roles, but there's no confusion. It's not like Jesus is saying, you know what, the Holy Spirit or God, no. And I'm sorry if I was irreverent there. I don't mean to be. It's interesting to note that Jesus always deflected the glory to God where it belonged. He never took it for himself. We have been created to glorify God, and the way that we do it is when we glorify our husband. The husband, then, is responsible to glorify God. And then there's harmony when we stay within the protection that God has designed for us. Okay, I have one more point, then I'm going to call up another woman for testimony. And if I could get your attention for this one. This one was a doozy for me. We're understanding our roles, right? God's saying, the previous verses, that the man is our head. But why? <clears throat> we need to go back to the original place of uh, the Garden of Eden. I want to talk about the effects of sin through the fall. God is now doling out the punishment. He says, the serpent, you're going to what? Crawl upon your belly. He says, the man, what? You're going to work by the sweat of your brow. And he says to the woman... <clears throat> I'll greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And I mean, that was enough for me. I'm like, okay, I'm good with that. 
That's a lot. That's enough. But I always overlooked the latter portion of that verse. And it says this. <laughs> your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall have the rule over you. What? What do you mean? Our desire shall be for her husband. That must be sexual. Or it's got to be emotional. But then really, why is it a curse? It's not a curse. One writer says it like this. In addition to the increased pain of childbirth, the woman would have to bear the frustration of a perpetual struggle between herself and her husband in the marriage relationship. In the next chapter, Genesis 4, verse 7, God says to Cain, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you shall rule over it. Same word, desire. So let's keep that in mind. The desire spoken of in Genesis 3.16, that's when God is talking to uh, Eve about the curse, um, is not the woman's sexual or emotional desire for her husband. Here it is, ladies. It is a desire to usurp his headship. It's exactly like sin's desire to master us described in Genesis 4.7 when God was talking to Cain. The word desire comes from an Arabic root, which means to seek control over. So just as in Genesis 4, 7, God is warning Cain that sin wants to gain control over him, a parallel expression is used in Genesis 3, 16, warning Eve that one of the consequences of her sin would be a perpetual, we're locked in a perpetual struggle with our husbands. She would attempt to usurp his authority, and he would respond by trying to impose a despotic authoritarian rule over her that would suppress her in a way that God never intended. God is good. God is intrinsically good. We have to remember that. I'd like to call up my next speaker, Margaret Denzinger. This is probably going to be one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. Us perfectionists have a hard time to expose our failures And that's what I'm going to have to do today. First of all, maybe I'll just give you a little bit of background about myself. Um, I grew up on a farm in the era when kids were to be an asset and a help to the family by the age of seven. Unrealistic expectations were a norm. And uh, I don't begrudge. I never had any bitterness from what I was expected to do as a child because I learned very early in my life that... God was there for me. There were so many times I cried out to God and said, God, I can't physically do this. But I knew that if I went back to my fairly austere dad and told him I can't, can't was a word that was never in his vocabulary. And he taught me not to have it in mind as well. And so I grew up becoming a very confident, strong person, knowing what I could do with the Lord's help. And the other factor in my life was that at age 16, because I was pushed through school very early, I'd already graduated from high school, and I was ready to go on to a career that my dad really didn't want me to have, but I felt so convicted, and the Lord showed me in so many ways that I needed to do that, and that was a teaching profession. And because I wanted to be an elementary teacher, at that point in time, we only needed a year of teacher's college. So at the age of 17, almost 18, I began my career and I was already away from home, living with some older sisters, but who gave me the freedom to do. They weren't dictating to me as I had maybe experienced in my early life. So what happened is that I learned to become 
probably in those days, a women liver. <laughs> you could term it that. I became very independent, made my own decisions, could do as I pleased. I knew deep down in my heart that I wanted to serve the Lord, and I had experiences where the Lord proved to me that uh, he was there and that I would eventually come to that point. So I started my career as a teacher. I worked for about 10 years, and I was approaching the age of 28, 29, and realizing that, you know what, God had given me lots of success in those 10 years, and I had accomplished a tremendous amount for those 10 years. And then um, I started thinking, Lord, is this all there is to my life? I love my teaching. I love my kids. But every woman, like we talked about, yearns to have a, a stronger relationship, a relationship with, with a husband, with a partner. And so I began to pray. And I said, Lord, you know me. I know me. I know that I need a person who will stand up to me, who I won't walk all over because of the type of person I was. And I prayed about that. Be careful what you pray for. <laughs> Once I got married to a man who has a strong German nature <laughs> and also a strong biblical stand, I used to then pray to the Lord, Lord, this is too much. This is not exactly what I thought it was going to be. And so I, I tried, but because of my nature, because of my job, because of the things that I was doing, I had already learned to make my own decisions, to do my own things, and I found that perhaps we didn't have the counseling. Maybe they thought our parents were doing it but at, or that we were old enough to know. But I just wish that I would have had an older person that I could have gone to. I moved to a small um, church where they were going through um, some turmoils within the church and ended up with having two churches. Nobody paid much attention. And so I struggled through the first few years of our marriage thinking, Oh, my, he's trying to change me into this and this and this. And I used to say often to him, if you liked what you saw before we were married, why are you trying to change me? But he was trying to conform me to the image of God that God expected of us. And I didn't realize that I think it was only in my reading. And materials weren't available like they are now where you could go turn to a book or, or search it on the Internet. And I had no materials that I could turn to until finally much later in our marriage, I came across the book that kind of stunned me. It talked about what's the purpose of, of a wife's role in a marriage. And it really got to me because it said to help your husband become the man of God that he should be. I'd failed that so miserably. Because I got to a point at one time when our kids were little, I said, you know what, forget him. I'm going to work on this next generation. They're going to be what they're supposed to be. Then I realized, oh my goodness, he's influencing my kids. I've got to do something here. This isn't working. And so then I realized, and, and my husband is a passive leader. And me, whoo, charge ahead like a bull. You know, and so this was really hard for me to wait for him. I often answered for him. I remember visiting one time in an elder's home, and I could see the elder turning to my husband and asking him the questions, and I was firing the answers, and he kept trying, because I was embarrassed that he would wait so long to answer. But I knew that whatever he said had such nuggets of knowledge in there that I... Now, I wish I could be more like he is in that way, that he thinks what he says and, and what he says has, has volumes of, of knowledge in there. And so um, that was hard for me to understand that as a passive leader, he still has to be the leader. 
I would take the role. And often, especially after our kids were already in school, I was involved in the school, and so finally one day he said to me, you know what, you just better go back to work and get paid for it. You're spending your days there anyway. And so I became a working mother. And in a small church, we had lots of company, lots of things going on. That added some stress to our life as well. We didn't have a large family, only two boys, but... um, Often, because of expediency and trying to get things done, and I learned that in school, you get your kids doing things, you get everything organized, and everything will work fine because you're in charge. So I tried that at home, and often he'd say to me, don't use your teacher voice with me. (laughs) It's that tone, and I didn't realize that again until I read that in books, that you know what, it's how we react. We nag, we this, we that, we the other, but that's really not the way God intends it. And it's until we understand that we need to come under the protection of that umbrella of the husband that we can then begin to do the role that we have. And if I can say something just in closing, we've come a long way in our marriage. And if you'll ask my husband, he'll say, we never had a bad marriage. (laughs) But me, the perfectionist, wants it to be perfect. And so uh, It wasn't until this accident happened and he was recuperating and he said to me, he said, you know, if there is a silver lining to this uh, accident, it's the fact that we're spending so much time together. And that humbled me. And now, if he says anything, I have to think he's still here. End of question. Thank you very much for that, Sister Margaret. Okay, we don't have much time, and I am. It's not because of you, it's because of me. Um, Okay, so now I want to talk about the wife's submission. And we're going to run through this really fast. I'm probably not even going to get through it. God has created an orderly world, right? To maintain that order, he appointed three institutions with their own spheres of authority. The family, the church, and the state. God planned it this way so that people could live in harmony together and be protected. For example, parents are ordained to protect their children, elders to protect church members, and the government to protect its citizens. Within the family, though, God has given the husband authority over the wife for her protection. I've heard it said that, and you know what, let's call it what it is, ladies. We did influence our husbands. Eve influenced the husband to sin. Now we would have to be under the influence of our husband. But God knows that we have a tendency and we have a weakness, and he zeroed in on it. And he says, it's okay, I'm taking care of you. I got your back. You do what's right, I'll take care of you. In fact, the submission is so important to God. It's so important that he made submission to her husband a manifestation of walking with the Lord, being in the will of God, and being filled with the Spirit. Many times, a wife may fail to see clearly the importance of her submission because she is so focused, and I can identify with this. We're so focused on what they're doing wrong. We begin to lose focus. Because our husbands are also sinners, they will at times be guilty of sinning against us. And if a wife's primary concern is what her husband should do, she will likely miss what God wants her to do. There's three basic responsibilities, to love him, to respect him, and to submit to him. Ephesians 5, 3, uh, 33 says, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. 
Her good works are not dependent upon what her husband does or doesn't do, but upon her obedience to God. When a husband has hurt his wife deeply by sinning against her, she can easily get caught up in thinking thoughts that help her to overlook or justify her own sins. These are some of these thoughts. If only he would do what he is supposed to do. Or, if only he weren't so selfish, then I could be a better wife. I can never be what God wants me to be because my husband isn't doing the right things. He's the one who needs to change, not me. God doesn't expect me to submit to a tyrant like him or something more fatalistic. There's no point in me trying. He'll never change. Undoubtedly, most, if not all, husbands need to make changes in their lives. But we said this earlier. Scripture never says that the wife's obedience to God is contingent upon what our husbands do or don't do. We must first take the log out of our own eye, and then we will see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's eye. I'm going to close up here with another testimony very quickly. Gary Thomas, in his book Sacred Influence, says this, making over your marriage begins with you. It's not wrong to desire more for your husband. He says, I'm not denying that you might enjoy your marriage more if your husband would drop some of those bad habits and pay more attention to you. I am saying that if you focus on changing your husband in such a way that you neglect to grow yourself, then he says, all I've done is inspire another Pharisee, not the godly woman God seeks. When you find yourself in a difficult marriage or in a basically good marriage with one or two particular issues that grate on you, you can be sure that God wants to mature you as you face this problem with strength, with courage, dignity, and biblical wisdom. He allows us to face issues that may terrify us and make us feel completely inadequate. He may even walk us through our deepest fears so that we may grow in him. So as we focus on our God-appointed responsibility to biblically submit to our husband, then you see your circumstance begin to change. It's true. Without compromising the integrity of my husband, which I don't want to do, I used to do that all the time, put him down as a joke. Even earlier I did that. But as I focused on my sin and on submitting, he would do something that I felt was terribly how could I say? It was putting me down, I felt. Or I just felt, this is wrong. It's 100% wrong, what he's doing. But as I submitted, he would come back to me. Like randomly, I'd be doing something around the house, and he'd come in and he'd say, you know, Jazz, I want to tell you something. It's almost like something hit him in the head. It's like, where did that lightning come from? Uh, uh, you know what I told you the other day? I- I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't respect you in the way that God wanted me to respect you. I'm sorry about that. And his opinion would completely change, and I didn't say one thing. I'd like to know who here in this room can change your husbands by nagging, complaining, talking, yelling, fighting. We haven't been given the power to change people. If you have it, bottle it up and sell it. You'll be a billionaire. But we, we haven't been given that right. Only God has that power. And as we come and are obedient to him and his will, and we come under the headship, the safe place in God's will, God's got our back. He'll do what he has to do. Don't you worry about it. 
It can also be that our understanding of true biblical submission has become greatly distorted. I mentioned all the things that were saturated within the world, the movies, the songs. They're lies, you guys. They're lies perpetrated by the devil. How does he change God's theology? It's through the things that we listen to. It's through the things that we see. He attacks the sociology. He attacks God's theology through sociology. Is that a grammatically correct statement? No? (laughs) It is what it is. Distrust and hostility towards biblical submission in our society is rampant. And because of the lack of clear, faithful teaching, that same distrust and hostility often exists within the Christian community itself. I'm going to close with something that I don't have here. And then I'm, oh, here we go. One author says this, The institution of marriage faces a particular danger today with the rise of the feminist movement. I've studied this. It's ugly, you guys. It seems noble on the exterior, but it's ugly. Its root is satanic. Many radical feminists have openly called for the end of marriage as an institution. But most feminists are more subtle than that, of course. Rather than calling for an end to marriage, per se, they simply deny the wife's duty to submit to her husband. Driven by the same desire to usurp their husband's authority that was inherent in the Genesis 3.16 curse, they will not be satisfied with spiritual equality that scripture says exists between husband and wife. They are determined to eradicate authority and submission in marriage altogether. While such a goal may seem merely egalitarian and equitable or normal, it is actually a recipe for chaos at the most basic level. It undermines the cohesiveness of the family unit by establishing an anarchy with no one in charge and everyone simply doing what is right in his own eyes. Overturning the biblical lines of authority in a family doesn't eliminate conflict. It multiplies them. I have one final thought, and I'm going to call up. I said that three times, right, about my final thought? Well, this one really is. I just want to read something here. I had a lot more prepared. I'm running out of time. We could talk about this later if anybody wants to come up. There's, there's so much more when it comes to this and how we can practically apply these principles. God made us to remake the world. Your home is where it starts. By courageously facing up to the challenges that every marriage faces, and by letting God change you in the process, something wonderful takes place. The formation of a new woman, fully alive to God, who can take the lessons she learns at home and applies them everywhere else. I'd like to call up my next testimony. Good thing we're out of time. I won't have to say too much. Um, Yasna asked me to share this experience with you. There was a situation that came up in our family that affected all of us. And Fred had asked me to make some changes in our our family structure. And uh, not family structure, just some things that we were doing. And I knew he was wrong. <laughs> and I really, truly knew it. And I knew that my plan was right and his was wrong and we battled and we were we were out of out of balance we were not at peace with each other the whole home was in disorder because i wanted to prove my way and i knew i was right 
And one day it got to the point where I just went into my room and I said, God, what is going on here? Why can he not see this? Why can't he just believe that I am right and do what I'm asking him to do? And God said, Martha, you need to submit. And I said, but he's wrong. And he said, you need to submit. And I thought, you know, it's really not worth it. My fight is not worth it. I wanted to prove that I was right, but I had to obey the Holy Spirit. And so I did what Fred had asked me to do. And I changed a few things in our home. And he realized that he was not right. (laughs) And that what I had suggested was the right way to do things. And our life came back into equilibrium. We were at peace again. The kids were at peace. They stopped fighting. They didn't even know what was going on. But just the idea that I, I couldn't continue to fight because it really was not worth it to push my point when I knew that the Holy Spirit was asking me to submit. Thank you very much, Sister Martha. I appreciate all the testimonies. Thank you for giving of yourself. Um, how do forms end? I've never done one. <laughs> Is this it? <laughs> Basically, um, I got a lot of my information. I do want to give credit where credit is due. Um, there, there are points from a few books. Um, one of them is this one. It's a, it's a tough read, as you could tell. It's been worn and tattered, and I barely got through it, and I still haven't managed to uh, read it cover to cover. But uh, anyway, this, this is one of the books that, um, that I've used, and Sacred Influence by Gary Thomas as well that have helped me um, with this um, Oh, oh, sorry about that. Gary Thomas. Sacred Influence. Yeah. And uh, the first one, this one's not so popular. It's a tough one. The Excellent Wife. Martha Peace. Martha Peace. The Excellent Wife by Martha Peace. And uh, Sacred Influence uh, by Gary Thomas. Yeah. Oh, is that right? <laughs> I can't give him my copy. There are too many notes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Oh, oh, she, yeah, uh, Stuart Scott, I think his name is. Uh, she partners up with someone else, the exemplary husband. I bought it, yeah, I bought it for Dennis. <laughs> he hasn't read it. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, I'm, I'm hoping that, um, that I was able to convey my point somewhat uh, I had some practical applications. When I ran this by Dennis one day after work, after about three and a half minutes, he nodded off. <laughs> I was very hurt. But anyway, he went off and he said, cut it down. And he went off to bed. So I should have taken his advice. I should have submitted. Anyway, God bless you all. <laughs>